where the foundation of functional neurology started, meaning looking at the actual function of the brain related to functional connectivity. Um, and that didn't mean structural connectivity. It means, you know, the way the brain was communicating or talking and how areas of the brain weren't communicating with one another and talking to one another and especially other hemispheres, you know, didn't initially synchronize or coordinate the way they're supposed to. And then looking at, you know, where that happens and the reason why it happens and the reason why these networks or areas of the brain aren't communicating because there's this developmental imbalance. It starts with the development of the brain and how the brain actually develops. All right, everyone, the Dr. Alex show is brought to you by Shed Light Cold Lasers. And Shed Light Cold Lasers has been a game changer for us at HML professionally and personally at home. Personally, on a, on a personal note, I had a very bad bout of vertigo. And I got probably 85% there by going to a few different functional neurologists over the years to help me out with it. Then I bought this. And this is a game changer because one, it's portable. That means I can take it to the office, use it on patients all day, make sure it stays charged, come on home, and then throw it in my pocket and use that home. And this is what cleared up my vertigo. Now, professionally, the way it's, game, it's uh, been the game changer for us in the office is that it has cut our results down by 50%. This can get used on just about anything any disease disorder that you can think of it can pretty much get used on now as far as how it has helped us out it's cut everything down by 50 percent on our times so when we're working with our kids with special needs uh, when we're working with our chronic neurological disorders autoimmune diseases to get those people into a good point that they're happy and that we're happy times have been cut by 50 percent you will definitely want to go check out shedlightcoldlasers.com or email Griswold at shedlightinformation at gmail.com, 518-338-6658. Well, all right, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Alex Show. And this is definitely the most exciting uh, guest that I somehow wrangled up. And his name is Dr. Robert Molello. And as I'm about to sing his praises, you'll find out, if you didn't already know, he's my main mentor, whether he knew that or not. Um, like a lot of people. And if you know Dr. Malela and his work, uh, you'll know why in, in a little bit. Uh, he's definitely one of my main mentors, along with my wife, Dr. Lauren. And it's it's such a blessing that that he's here. And we're just going to talk about whatever, wherever this conversation takes us. So, uh, so Doc, uh, where do you want to start? Um, I kind of like how you approach things when I've taken all of your classes in the past and just start with your story, what got you into functional neurology and doing this work? Because one of the things about the reasons why I started this podcast was to be able to get it out there to tell people and families about another option to help not only their kids, but themselves. Right. Yeah. Well, again, thank you very much. And it's very kind of you to say that I'm honored, obviously, if you consider me a mentor, um, I appreciate it. And I, I appreciate you taking the time and sacrifices to do my courses. Um, you know, that's what I do it for. I do it for, you know, to for people like you that are really going to be interested in, they're going to take it in and do a difference. You know, for me, <clears throat> I, uh, I, from the time I started chiropractic school, I had a passion for neurology from my very first neuro neuroanatomy course. Um, I loved it. And I also was an athlete and, and I went to chiropractic school mainly because as an athlete, um, I had a football scholarship in college. I played all different types of sports and growing up, I had all injuries and it was always our family chiropractor that saved me. Um, so when it came time for me to uh, I was thinking about medical school and um, and then um, I thought about what I wanted to do and I wanted to do, I wanted to work with athletes like me. And so it just made sense to me to go where it had always helped me the most. Um, and then when I was in chiropractic school, I fell in love with neurology. And then towards my, uh, the end of my school, I had someone come down who did a lecture um, on neurology and clinical neurology and it blew me away. 
And then as soon as I graduated, the first diplomate course in neurology was started. And so for me, you know, I was in because I'd already been starting to read research and starting to do, you know, uh, research papers on neurology. And, and I, what I wanted to do ultimately was create some way of combining my love of neurology and, and kind of a sports medicine rehab approach to, you know, all the different types of, of issues that were out there. And that's what it started with me. It started with neuro and rehab. I, I got my diplomate in neurology um, right out of graduate, right out of school, and then started a really advanced rehab program right away. And so, you know, within my first, let's say six or seven years out, I had a diplomate in neurology and rehab. And at that point, that's where I was into. I started teaching uh, postgraduate neurology and rehab myself. Again, I was doing some research into it. Um, and, you know, everything was great. It was exciting. My practice was doing really well. I was working with really, really difficult issues. Um, and then this was the beginning of the 90s. And in the beginning of the 90s, Bill Clinton had, had called it the, dec the decade of the brain. Yeah. So what happened was all this research money went into brain research. And from that point, you know, uh, imaging to be able to look at the brain in real time, like fMRI and PET scans and spec scans and all these things, magnoencephalography really advanced. Um, and so, you know, this is where all this information was starting to come out. And I was just like soaking it up and absorbing it and, you know, doing really, really good work. And then in 1995, um, I came home late from work one night and my wife was home with my three young children. And it was, uh, you know, late evening, like many evenings. And there was a woman sitting at my uh, table, my kitchen table, and she was crying and she was with my wife. And so my wife introduced me. She said, Rob, this is Denise. Um, I met her at a fundraiser. She started an organization for kids with various types of disabilities and ADHD and autism her son has some issues and she's tried everything and nothing has really worked. And she's looking for, you know, other ways, other alternatives, other ideas. And I told her that, you know, a lot about, you know, the neurology and brain, and you know, a lot about nutrition, you know, a lot about a lot of things and you work with many different doctors. So maybe you can help. And so, you know, I looked at my wife and I said, I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, but I took her aside and I said, you know, I'm already coming home late. I'm lecturing on weekends. Um, you know, I don't know what ADHD is. I don't know what these things are. And she said, well, you know, I, know. I, I understand that. And she said, but I have a feeling that you're supposed to do something with this. Right. So I said, okay, I'll start looking into it. Um, not coincidentally about th two to three days later, we went to my oldest son's first, um, parent teacher meeting in first grade. And it was the first one I went to. And I sat down and the teacher says, I don't know how to say this folks, but I think your son may have some, something like ADHD. And I said, wow. And so inside, you know, as a professional, someone who's supposed to know a lot about neurology, I was embarrassed, right? Because I'm like, how do I not know what ADHD is? And I don't even see it in my son. Some stranger has to tell me about it. Yeah. And then like most parents, I felt like I was to blame in some way because I wasn't home enough or whatever. Um, but then there was another part of me where my I heard my wife saying, you're supposed to do something with this. Like and so I, I took it as a message and I said, all right. And the first question that popped into my head was, what is ADHD? What is actually happening in the brain? And so I went out and again, I worked in a practice with many different doctors, MDs, you know, pediatric neurologists, all different types of people. And I said to them, what's ADHD? What's happening in the brain? And they all looked at me and said the same thing. We have no idea, no idea. And I said, come on, somebody has to have any idea. And they said, well, I don't know anything, but you know, it's something with dopamine maybe, but otherwise no. So for me, I just, you know, said, okay, I'm gonna, I was already doing research. I dove into the research. It became my obsession for, you know, better part of 10 years to figure out what the actual problem was. And uh, eventually I found and connected with other researchers that really had a good idea of what was happening in the brain. And um, 
started compiling all this literature and eventually wrote my first textbook called Neurobehavioral Disorders of Childhood and Evolutionary Perspective, which really laid out the whole, you know, concept theory um, and then laid the foundation for now that I really had an understanding, not only did I feel like I understood what the problem was, but in doing that, I also came up with a unique solution of how to actually change it and improve it. Mm-hmm. And I started with my own son and I started with Denise's son. And then uh, now, you know, uh, work directly or indirectly with, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids around the world. Yeah. So now along the way, you had started the Brain Balance Centers. Mm-hmm. And my gosh, that's up to 100 or over 100 centers now nationwide. Right. Where, where they're doing um, they're doing work and protocols basically that you had come up with, mm-hmm. um, from all of your research and because don't glaze over that. Cause that's kind of a big deal. Right. And so for parents looking for options, there's brain balance centers. You can, you can look at brain balance centers for anyone that needs to get some sort of assessment or second look at your kiddo with, uh, any sort of needs. Then, uh, when was, when was it, when you had, wasn't there a point along the way where you had actually been really teaching a lot of this or was that all along? What was that all, all alongside this? When, when did you actually start the neurobehavioral courses that I'm most familiar with? Yeah. So I had been teaching, you know, the diplomate course in neurology. I had been start. I started teaching that in the early nineties, 91, 92. Uh, and, And then I started incorporating some of what I was learning and what I was teaching and what I was developing um, and the treatment approach that I was developing. I was incorporating that into those courses. And then eventually in 2000, uh, I was approached by somebody who said, hey, let's, you know, I know you're doing some really interesting stuff with kids and everything. Um, Let's, let's teach that as a separate course. So you know, I said, okay, that sounds good. So um, around 2000, 2001 was the first time I taught my course. And it was only three classes at the time, three weekend modules. Um, And then, uh, you know, that became expanded as my knowledge and as my research and as my experiences to where eventually now, you know, I, I have a course that is online and in person and is for doctors and therapists and it's a certification fellowship course that is uh, uh, 10 modules. It's about 150 hours. So, you know, I've been doing that, teaching that course and developing it since the year 2000. Um, like I said, that's about the time when I was just finishing up writing my first textbook and developing my program. And, and as you said, you know, I started teaching it first because once I started getting the results, that's the point. You know, once I knew what the problem was and I started to understand that, you know, there's this thing called a functional disconnection syndrome. There's this imbalance, this developmental imbalance between the hemispheres and creating balance between the hemispheres and communication and connectivity. Uh, That was the answer. Once I really understood what the problem was, then I could start to formulate a solution. And once I started to employ that right away, I started getting unbelievable results that I knew nobody else was getting. And so right away, I I figured, okay, I need to get this out there because at the same time, I recognized that we were facing this epidemic rise of neurobehavioral disorders in kids um, that was unprecedented. So I knew that there were a lot of families out there struggling. And so my first thought was, let me go out and teach other doctors and therapists how to do that. But you know, it's, it's, it's the concepts are easy to learn, but how to incorporate it into a practice, how to make it so that somebody would actually be able to use it in the, in the best way was a little bit more complicated. So that's when at a certain point uh, we develop, we developed the idea of developing centers and where everything was, you know, someone could just say, okay, I want to buy the whole center. I want, I want the whole center. I want everything. I want how do we make it into a viable business? How do we make this into something that we can, you know, do and, and be successful at and help people? Because bottom line is no one's going to no even a doctor is not going to do a business if they can't financially be successful at it. So 
um, yep. we created this kind of model, which was brain balance. But that was, you know, a a um, a model that, again, as you said, is about 100 now. And I think we've worked with over 70,000 kids in the United States and like a 95% success rate. It's huge. But yep. I designed that for really higher functioning population of kids and um, really for kids. And it's mm -hmm. more of an academic model. And so they're learning centers. They're not healthcare facilities. So they're not using, you know, a lot of really advanced cutting edge, you know, medical and therapy tools per se. Yep. Um, and even so, the results are incredible. Um, what I've done since Brain Balance, you know, got to a certain point, it's successful. What I really wanted to do over the last five years was focus on the kids and the adults and people that Brain Balance you know, wasn't designed for, which was, you know, let's say kids with nonverbal autism, genetic issues, um, brain injury, um, adults with various types of issues that were developmental, but yet, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anxiety, um, all different types of things, adult ADHD, uh, all which, you know, usually start in childhood, but yet if you don't get, if you don't take care of them in childhood, they're going to persist throughout your whole life. So this is where I've been focusing. And with that, I developed something called the Melillo method, which is a much more advanced model that uses really cutting edge tools, um, you know, therapeutic tools of all kinds, you know, diet, nutrition, lasers, cranial stimulation, you know, and all these different types of things, QEG, neurofeedback. And, uh, and that's the model that I'm working with now. And I just developed a new center uh, in New York that is really the, the prototype of what I think really the future is going to look like. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that, so it's, uh, it, it's funny that, that you kind of evolved in that manner. Because uh, when I was in school, I, I don't know when this was, 2010, uh, 2011, I don't know, uh, it, it, you know, getting through clinic, if you will, uh, call it, I, I call it God, call it, call it the universe. Um, I had all the way through school, I had something whispering in my ear, chiropractic neurology, functional neurology. Then as I went through school, kids, kids. And so then I don't even remember how it happened, but I had a kid come in who was wetting the bed at night and at school and he comes in and I, his name is Wyatt and I meant to bring it today and I, but I still have it. It is a cube of tinfoil and he got in trouble. This is what got the mom into school or got the mom to bring the kid into me. He got in trouble because he took this tinfoil that he made into a cube and he was supposed to give the tinfoil back to the teacher, but he didn't. And the teacher really blew it out of proportion and um, said it's time to evaluate for ADHD and this, that, and the other. So the mom found me, maybe it's because I was taking care of the mom and comes in and her main concern is wetting the bed, but she's like, Hey, if you can also maybe do anything about the ADHD, let me know. Well, it happened to be that I was the guy sitting in the back of the class, not listening to the teacher reading your books. And so then I, do my assessment on him, which is running the hemispheric brain assessment that was taught in your book, Disconnected Kids. And I, the, the way it goes is I, I pissed off all the clinicians. No one would sign off on, on allowing me to treat the kid. And so then I got like the dean of the clinic to, or one of the dean's assistant deans just said, oh yeah, I'll take care of it. So he signed off and I was like, oh, okay, that was easy. Ends up being he had, he actually sat in front of the president of the school. He sat in Carl Cleveland's office and got, got, got railed because he, he let me work on this kid. And, but in, uh, within three sessions of working on his right brain, he didn't wet the bed and he sat still in class and he was just fine. And to my knowledge to this day, he still is. I, I heard from his mom like five years ago, he, she somehow tracked me down and emailed me and said, he's still doing great. Uh, but it's funny that, it's like I've I've gone from something like that to now um, we're evolving our practice to the point to where we're seeing these very very sick people um, to to where it's almost like we we have the utmost confidence to help people with 
things that you wouldn't think you'd get help with, like ADHD, you can actually improve function or autism, you can improve function. But now people are coming in with functional neurological disorder, what used to be lumped in with convergence disorder and bipolar and schizophrenia and very bad emotional trauma. Uh, it, it's amazing how it, how you almost like stair step up to that. Um, but, it, but I guess the whole point of what we do is it, it's always evolving and it allows us to be able to help those people. Well, you know, there's two things when I first started looking into the research, um, in the early nineties and, you know, we know it now more, even more now is the two things that everybody was talking about. It's called functional connectivity. And also that all of even the adult issues were developmental. So meaning that they all start in the child in childhood or they start in the womb. Um, and they're functional, meaning they're not genetic. These are not genetic mutations or genetic disorders. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, the thing that was most confusing is that, you know, if you look at a traditional MRI or you look at genetic testing or lab testing, there's nothing grossly abnormal. Um, but yet behavior and function is clearly significantly abnormal in, in different things, especially when you're dealing with things like autism or schizophrenia or bipolar. Um, you know, clearly there are issues. Yeah. And, you know, so the idea was, you know, what is actually happening? And this is where the foundation of functional neurology started, meaning looking at the actual function of the brain related to functional connectivity. Um, and that didn't mean structural connectivity. It means you know, the way the brain was communicating or talking and how areas of the brain weren't communicating with one another and talking to one another and especially other hemispheres, you know, didn't initially synchronize or coordinate the way they're supposed to. And then looking at, you know, where that happens and the reason why it happens and the reason why these networks or areas of the brain aren't communicating because there's this developmental imbalance. It starts with the development of the brain and how the brain actually develops. And so, you know, you have to even in an adult. So, you know, things like schizophrenia and bipolar and, you know, most adult issues actually go back to childhood. And if you know how to look and examine somebody from that standpoint, and this is where, you know, I further develop developmental functional neurology or neuroscience, meaning it's not just about the functional neurology it's almost always developmental functional neurology, understanding how the brain actually grows and develops and understanding what goes wrong when it doesn't grow and develop appropriately. And that, you know, the reason why we're seeing such an, such an explosion of childhood and adult mental health issues and education and is because um, of the environmental factors and lifestyle changes that have occurred over the past 30 years, especially with the development of technology and computers and sedentary behavior and changes in diet and increasing stress, all of these different things that impact the child, but also impact the parents before they go to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that, uh, you know, what we call epigenetic factors that are really driving this epidemic rise. And so the good news is that all of those things are things that we can kind of measure and that we can change um, either even before birth or after birth. And, you know, so there's no damage or injury, but the problem is, is that you have to really know what you're doing to really identify it, right? Because you can't take a picture and see these things. You have to be able to really do a proper examination and measure it and understand what the issues are. Um, you know, and that's really the focus of what, what I've been doing and continually trying to perfect. But the idea that 20% of kids in the United States have some sort of mental health or educational diagnosis, and 20% of adults have the same level of diagnosis. So is that a different population? Or is it the same population of the 20% of kids that was never dealt with, and they become the adults? And and everybody, every expert will also say that all of these issues are underdiagnosed. So they're not overdiagnosed. So there's actually a lot more people out there that are undiagnosed and untreated. So, you know, we're dealing with probably at least a quarter of the population that has some level of developmental functional neurology imbalance that is significantly impacting them to the point where they, you know, have a diagnosis or should. 
And then there's probably another 25% that they're not functioning in the optimal way, but they're not necessarily going to fit any clear cut, you know, criteria or a diagnosis, but clearly they're not functioning in the, in the most optimum way as well. Yeah. So something that like comes to mind for me when you say that is, I'm not sure why it comes to mind, but in one of your lectures, I know that when you were uh, really heavily involved with, with IAFNR, I think that's when you were speaking to Lou Casalino, Dr. Lou mm -hmm. Casalino. Yes. And at, and at one point, uh, so the only reason I remember this, by the way, is because when I took your courses, I was, I was commuting like 40 minutes a day. So I've literally listened to the courses four times, all 10 of them. And you had said, uh, and that was just the only way I memorize it. But anyway, uh, Lou Casalino had said, yeah, we know what's going on with this, or we know what's going on with that, but we don't know what to do about it. And you're exactly. like, well, well, I know what to do about it. Right. So for like for everyone listening, what's the most eloquent way to put, like, why is it that, uh, and, and I had spoke to Dr. Jerome Libby yesterday, interviewed him, and we kind of talked about this. What's the most uh, best way of putting, like, why is it that the, the, the medical profession, they're, they're really good at knowing what's going on, but not necessarily knowing what to do about it. And I'm not here to bash talk anyone or anything of that nature, but it's like, it seems to be that like all, a lot of practitioners like ourselves, we get our hands on the patients after the fact. They've already mm -hmm. been through X, Y, Z and all these practitioners. So right. why is it that, that we figure out the, <laughs> what to do about it? Like, I, I, I still kind of haven't really wrapped my head around it. Is it just because we're like, like yourself was reading research one day and you're like, Hmm, well, the right brain does this. So, Oh, well, just go stimulate it and find out what happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it really starts like, first of all, I think the advantage of starting out as a chiropractor and I have many different degrees and I'm in the midst of a PhD right now in cognitive neuroscience. And I have a whole team of neurologists that are on my research team, and they are completely blown away by what they're learning and what they're doing. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But yeah. um, I think, first of all, it teaches us to think a little outside the box, right? Yeah. Uh, we're not, you know, brainwashed that the only thing that is available is drugs and that, you know, that there's really nothing else there. And, you know, people don't realize that clinicians are clinicians. They're not researchers. And there's very few people that can do both. I've dedicated my life to being able to do both. Um, and, you know, it's hard. It's even hard now, again, as I'm doing, uh, you know, another doctorate degree. But the idea that, you know, clinicians understand that. My, my, my producer's shaking his head, by the way. <laughs> in what way? Good or bad? He's just like, he's like, he's like I, I don't know how he does it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's, it's partly, you know, when you, when you know the truth and when you see the results that I get, and on the cases, especially, like I said, the last few years I've been working with the most difficult cases I can get my hands on in the world mm -hmm. and we're still getting unbelievable results. That that's what drives you. But I think yeah. that, um, you know, you, you get a clinician learns, you do these tests and you come up with this diagnosis or, you know, you get these symptoms, you do these tests and then based on the test, you do these treatments and it's basically an algorithm, right? And mm -hmm. clinicians are good at that. You know, clinicians are good and MDs are good at that and, and DCs are good at that and anybody that's a clinician. But what's not in there is typically we don't really talk about why, right? There isn't really a, a talk a lot about, well, what is actually happening? What is actually going on? Um, because that's a much deeper conversation. And again, most people are just trying to deal with symptoms and try, try to give people relief. And, you know, especially in the medical profession, it's really not, um, you know, they're really not looking at causation as much as they're really looking at what do we do to, to manage the symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, it starts with that mentality of really understanding, like I said, you know, what is actually happening in the brain? I mean, what is, the, someone tells me that my son has a brain issue. And I want to know, well, what is that exactly, right? And, right. you know, most parents would like to know that too, but, they, but they'll go to a doctor and the doctor never answers that because they don't know. 
They just say, well, we don't know what it is, but here are the symptoms and here's a treatment, here's a medication, whatever, or here's a way that you can try to manage it. But they don't understand what the actual problem is. They have no clue whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so for me as a parent and as a clinician, I felt like I need to know what the problem is, right? Because I don't know if I can help my son or Denise's son or if I can't, but I don't know that until I actually know what the problem is. And and everybody's telling me they don't know what it is. So, you know, and they're also trying to say, well, there's nothing you can do about it. And I said, well, how do you know if you, if there's nothing you can do about it when you don't know what it is, right? So right. for me, it started with really that idea that, okay, I mean, I had some basic knowledge. I knew about the brain and the nervous system. Um, you know, I was a, a clinician. I, I knew about different types of treatments and you know, working on the nervous system. And, you know, as I started researching it and looking at it, you know, my background is again, being in neuro and rehab with rehab, you're dealing with a lot of imbalances, right? As chiropractors, we're taught to think of imbalances in the spine, imbalances in the, in the vestibular system and, you know, head tilts and body tilts and postural tilts and rehab. It's a lot like that as well, right? Like there's imbalances in the muscles, there's imbalances in the joints. And when I first started looking at, you know, what is ADHD, the first thing I read was uh, some articles where some experts were saying, you know, the thing that stands out is that these kids have this unevenness of skills where they're really good at certain things, but they really struggle with others. So right off the bat, I I said, wow, that sounds like some sort of imbalance, right? So. I said, hmm, okay, well, what are they really good at and what are they not so good at? Just out of curiosity. And as I started reading it, I one day noticed, I was like, wait, all of these things that they're really good at, they're all left brain skills. And then all these things that they're bad at, they're right brain skills. And I said, oh, it can't be that easy, right? It can't be that straightforward. Somebody would have seen that before. And so I kept on looking, waiting to see where it would all fall apart. And the more I read and the more systems I looked at, the more I realized that it was completely distributed, that the things that they were good at were typically left brain and the things that they struggled, not only cognitively and behaviorally, but motorically in the way that they process sensory information and even the way that their immune system reacted and all of these things. And so I, I, I saw this and I went, wow this is an imbalance and it's, it seems like it's an imbalance between the hemispheres where in ADHD, at least where the left brain is strong or overactive and the right brain is underdeveloped. So then it was like, okay, well, how would that happen? And then I started really looking at development and I went back and looked at evolution and how brains developed to begin with. And, and that led me to, you know, again, that started with my textbook and, saying, you know, you know, what are brains? Where did they start? And how did they develop? And how did they evolve? And how does a child's brain develop? And where can things go wrong? And one of the best things I found was that, you know, when we're looking at right brain and left brain development, the right brain develops first in the womb for the first three years, and then the left brain. So in the first six years, the right brain develops first, there's a greater emphasis on that. And then the left brain. So right there, That gives the idea that, okay, so if something happens during one stage of development or the other, it will impact one side of the brain more than the other. Mm -hmm. And if one side slows down, the other side might speed up, especially if people are, are, you know, unusually gifted on one side of the brain or the other. And this can- Or what's passed down from parents. Right. Based on traits, based on family traits. Right. And we know that autism and bipolar and schizophrenia, it's all superimposed on traits. Right. We have uh, what we call an intellect trait, which is what we see in autism and schizophrenia Mm -hmm. and ADHD, where you have families that highly intelligent, you know, physics professors run in the family, engineers, mathematicians, people that work in the IT industry, what I, what I look at as a left brain type of dominant cognitive style, right? Yep. And then bipolar disorder is referred to as a creativity trait. So bipolar, dyslexia, depression, learning disabilities, you know, are people that are creative or athletic. And, you know, we see people like Hemingway and other people. So everybody in the family 
or you go back and there's a lot of people in the family that are artists or musicians or writers or athletes or people that are incredibly social. So have this real dominant right brain type of ability. And, you know, that all comes together. You have this natural left brain strength and then you have, you know, the right brain developing something happens in the womb or the first couple of years. And, you know, it delays the development of that right brain. The left brain kicks in too early and too aggressively already on a strength. And now the, the, the left brain gains more of a dominance over the right and prevents it from developing appropriately. And this is this developmental imbalance that starts within the first six years. And once it's there, it only gets worse. Every time they go through a growth spurt, the strong side grows more than the other side. And if we do therapies bilaterally, which is what most people do, it makes the strong side, you know, stronger and the weak side relatively weaker. And, you know, and it, this imbalance tends to get worse. And, you know, when you look at the symptoms, you know, there's there's a great book, uh, a guy named Ian McGilchrist. He's a very well-known psychiatrist from UK. Yes. And he wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary, The, the Brain... The, uh, the brain asymmetry and the West rise of Western civilization. And in it, you know, it's an 800 page book with thousands of references all about brain asymmetry and how it relates to psychiatric and psychological issues. And <clears throat> in the beginning, he quotes this, you know, well-known neuroscientist who says that, you know, nothing in psychology or psychiatry makes sense unless you look at it in the light of brain asymmetry, meaning that when you look at any of these disorders or these issues, if you look at them on the surface, it, and it's confusing, right? It's like, why would they have this? You know, like, um, you know, you can get a kid that is an early word reader and is great at reading, maybe even hyperlexic, taught himself to read at two years of age. Yep. And then they get to fourth grade and they can't comprehend anything they're reading. It's like, why would that happen, right? People are like, reading is reading. Um, and, you know, why would they be really good at certain things and then really super struggle at other things? Um, you know, you look at schizophrenia or a bipolar or any of these things on the surface and you look at it and, you know, does it make sense? But if you then look at it relative to what the right brain and left brain do, all of a sudden everything makes sense. And so that's why it's, it's so important what I'm doing and what I'm saying, because it really is the core problem. And the reason is, is that because the right and the left hemisphere develop differently and them getting to synchronize and coordinate is really not an easy thing. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And when things go wrong, it presents, you know, in, in, uh, you know, odd behavior or, you know, it's not gross differences. And, Again, because this is imbalanced, you get people that might be exceptional at certain things and really high functioning. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you get someone who their whole life is a gifted student, but yet is struggling socially or emotionally their whole life, can't have friends or, but, you know, they get straight A's in school and they go to Ivy League and they go to MIT and they're brilliant. And so, you know, we figure, well, they must have a pretty good brain, right? Yep. But they do in certain areas, but not in others. And and that's the thing. And that is what I've been able to show is that this is so important and it's relatively easy to correct when you understand this. Yeah. I, sorry, I was just really grinning there when you mentioned MIT because I was thinking about the story uh, when you went to MIT and it's kind of off topic, but you talked about, uh, you talked about artificial intelligence. So this is, not to go, we're not going to go left field too far, but it's just funny because you're in this, this room with geniuses and you're talking about artificial intelligence. Um, and, uh, your, your take on artificial intelligence is, is pretty awesome. So I'll have to let you explain that in a sec, but yeah, you, you, you're sitting there basically saying that you're in a room with a bunch of people with Asperger's and, and, and I'm, and I'm not laughing at them. I'm just laughing about the situation because no one's making eye contact with you because they don't know how to be social. But man, they will tell you how to figure out some serious technologically based problems or how to advance society. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But yeah, no one had anywhere near normal social intelligence. Yeah. Right. So they're brilliant with math. They're brilliant with science. 
but they, I mean, they couldn't look up. They, many of them looked so unhealthy. Their posture was terrible. Um, you know, and again, no one could hold eye contact for more than like a second. Yeah. And, you know, but so this is the idea. Yes. They're geniuses on the side of, you know, math and science, but their emotional IQ was, you know, like childlike. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem right there. Right. Now, the idea is now imagine if you take that person and bring their social intelligence to match their intellectual intelligence. Um, yes. Now you have somebody that is, you know, super high functioning and and can change the world. And, and that's where, you know, that's my goal. I see these kids that I see their potential because I always tell parents that, you know, you're you're bringing this child to me. And, and I get kids, you know, again, that are nonverbal autistic that are as low functioning as you can imagine. And I know that the parents are thinking, well, my child is so low functioning and so deficient. And the first thing I say to him, understand this, your child isn't deficient. They're too strong in a certain area. And that's the problem. Their, their other side of their brain isn't really deficient. It's just relatively deficient because one side is so gifted. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole different perspective. And uh, I think it's important to look at it that way because a lot of parents are just like they're told, well, your child has very low IQ. They'll never do anything or, you know, they're just intellectually challenged or disabled. And it's, it's not really the case. It's that there's so there's so much of an imbalance that you can't even measure what their capacity is. You have no idea. I have this. If you've been watching my Instagram of late, you know, there's this one kid I was working with and, um, this kid was, you know, I worked with him before, nonverbal autistic kid. He's about nine years of age, um, you know, toe walker, a lot of stims and ticks. And, you know, he definitely has progressed a lot and he's gotten really, really well. Um, but the parents started using a letter board with him recently where he could actually start to speak to them. Right. Oh. And, um, you know, and, we, and you have to be careful when you use that because you don't want to delay. You don't want to give them a crutch where they won't speak. Yeah. But by the same token, giving them what to communicate is important, right? Yeah. And so this kid, right from the beginning, he started using this letter board with assistance. And he started saying, somebody asked him, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to be a physicist when I grow up. And his mother, you know, got... Uh, online free classes from Yale physics department. <clears throat> and he sits like two hours a day and watches the whole, the whole thing. And there was a point where she started going through some math with him. And he, he said, you know, I love math. The math you give me is too easy though. And they asked him in class, you know, when he's in classroom, how come he doesn't pay attention? And he says, because it's too easy for me. Um, and, you know, this kid is, is brilliant. I mean, he's this brilliant genius kid and you would never know it because you can't, he can't say anything just yet. And part of what he says, and it all starts with this. And if you've read other books by people or adults who have grown up like him, it all starts with the same thing. I don't feel my body. I can't control my body. Mm -hmm. So where do we feel our body and where do we control our body? It's our right hemisphere right? The right hemisphere has a map for our body. It connects us to our body and basic feelings uh, that these kids don't develop, which is things like pain, hunger, thirst, smell, the, you know, when they have to go to the bathroom, like that kid that was bedwetting. Why was he bedwetting? Because he didn't feel that he had to actually go to the bathroom, right? Yep. Yeah. Because he didn't have that connection to his body yet. Mm -hmm. And that was a right brain thing. You did right brain stimulation. He also had ADHD because attention is a right brain function, right? So all of those things are related. Um, but again, you look at the surface and go, well, what does bedwetting have to do with attention problem, right? Like, what does that have to do with? But yep. then when you understand the brain and how it works and how it develops and this idea, and in the sessions, he would actually say, thank you. I can feel my body now. I can feel my body better. And he's so disconnected from his body that he calls his body Bob. He calls it, it's a separate entity and it's not schizophrenia. It's literally he, he, and, and so at one point I said to the mom, did you ever ask him why he can't speak? 
And she said, no, I never did. And nobody ever did. I said, ask him, just ask him, Grayson, why can't you actually speak? And he typed in, he said, I tried to move my mouth, but my, but Bob won't let me move. Right. So wow. meaning that he tries to speak, but he's so disconnected from his body that he can't control it to control the muscles of speech. And it's not because the left brain speech center that controls the muscle is bad. It's actually higher than normal, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is he doesn't feel the muscles. So this is the idea. Like when you, I, I tell parents, if you have, uh, you know, if your leg goes numb, right? If, you, if your leg falls asleep, what's actually happening? Well, you've compressed the blood flow and it's affected the sentry nerves of your leg. Not the motor nerves, but the sentry nerves. But yet, if you try to get up and walk, you can't walk. Why? Not because your muscles are not working, not because the motor system is not working, but because you can't feel your leg. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know how to move it. So these kids are so disconnected from their body that they can't control or feel the muscles of their body, of their mouth, of the speech, and they can't literally move their mouth. And so at the end of the, the week I was just working with him, he actually started to say words for the first time. And he said, it's because so I, awesome. can now, I can now start to feel my body more. Um, and, you know, so it's really fascinating because this kid is a genius trapped in this body where he can't control his body and he's not connected from his body. But if we can connect him, then, you know, this kid could maybe develop, you know, a theory that can change the world someday. Yeah. Yeah. And actually speaking of theory that changes the world, that is super fascinating. So we're talking about left brain strengths. I'll set you up. Who is the number one person that walked this planet? Most likely number one person that was not a left brain genius. Albert Einstein. <laughs> Which is an amazing thought. Yeah. It is. But when you, again, when you understand right brain, left brain, the right brain is the big picture, right? Mm -hmm. The right brain is putting it all together. The right brain is really the idea of nonverbal communication, of social interactions, of, of being able to have an imagination and, you know, creative thinking and thinking of things that, and creating things that nobody ever thought of before, right? Yep. The left brain is creative, but in different ways. It's more about taking things that already exist and changing them in little ways or perfecting them, um, but not creating something completely new. So when you talk about somebody that com completely came up with something new and talk about the big picture, I mean, the guy figured out the whole universe, right? Yep. But yes, he was a very social person. Um, you know, he... Uh, had had a lot of relationships with uh with uh the other the opposite sex yeah um and you take somebody like isaac newton who was clearly a left brain genius and newton was you know not social at all i mean most people described him that he was you know kind of a, a jerk and because they didn't understand him and by all accounts he never had an interpersonal relationship with anybody his whole life and he was obsessive and compulsive and, you know, but he invented calculus, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, a creative thing, but in a different way. But yeah, so Einstein, as far as I'm concerned, was a huge right brain genius who really was able to see the world. And even the way he talks about it, the way the right brain learns is really through, um, you know, physically interacting um, he would do thought experiments where he would literally envision himself doing something, uh, riding on a, you know, a rocket ship, uh, uh, racing uh, a light beam uh, or envision, a, a, you know, a train going away from him as he was on the platform. So he would envision things. This is the way the right brain thinks. It thinks in images. It thinks kind of like in, you know, circumstances in real life. It doesn't think in, you know, numbers and facts and details. And Einstein, you know, was just uh, amazing at his ability to, to see these things. And, you know, the one thing that we know was different about Einstein's brain is there's an area called Broadman Area 39 on the right side that was larger. And that's probably one of the, the main areas of our brain that is responsible for integration and for, 
you know, really high concepts um, is really that area 39, which is also known as the angular gyrus. Mm -hmm. And well, the other neat thing about his brain that I, um, well, you would know, one of the ladies that were involved in his life at one point had said that probably the biggest differences with uh, Einstein's brains and other people's brains, I think it was actually Dr. Krasin I learned this from, I'm sorry, uh, was that uh, he had uh, just a huge amount, an astronomical amount more of glial cells, support cells for the brain. Yeah. So there was a woman named Marianne Diamond who was, uh, you know, an incredible researcher that was one of the people that was a pioneer in neuroplasticity back in the 60s out of Berkeley. And um, so at some point there was a doctor named Thomas Harvey who was attending Einstein in 1955 when he died in Princeton Hospital. And he uh, obtained permission from Einstein's son to preserve his brain. And then he, um, you know, uh, put it, made slices up and he would lend them out to people. And there was yeah. a certain point where they sent it to this woman, Marianne Diamond. And, you know, she was one of the premier people in the world at really looking at, you know, brain cells. And so she showed that the only difference between Einstein's brain really and um, other brains, typical brains, was the glial to neuron ratio. And so from that, she showed that, you know, especially in his parietal lobes, especially in that area, 39 area, Mm -hmm. that he had a lot more glial cells to neurons than typical people, which to her meant that he was not born a genius because he didn't have more neurons. He had more glial cells, which means that with his neurons, the more you use your neurons, the more you use your brain, the more glial cells you need to support the brain cells. So as you're using the brain cells, they get bigger. And as they get bigger and more connected, you need more glial cells to support and to you know, provide nutrients and things like that to the, to the neurons. So that he had made himself into a genius by the way he used his brain. Mm-hmm. And the way he used his brain was one, he also would, you know, used to play a lot of music and a violin. And, but his thought experiments that he would constantly go through, um, I believe, helped, you know, take what, what his natural gifts. I mean, he obviously was a very intelligent, bright person and he was a unique right brain genius. But it was really how he used his brain that really gave him his genius. It wasn't something just genetically he was born Uh, with that. So that was the difference. It was that the glial to neuron cell ratios doesn't mean that he was just born with more glial cells. He developed more glial cells through use. Yeah. And, you know, the other reason I bring up Einstein, and I always bring up Einstein, because after I learned about what your take was on him, which, which seems to make so much sense after understanding more about him, is when I work with Anyone on, or, or, or my wife, sorry, Dr. Lauren, cannot not uh, forget her, um, is whenever we have someone that comes in the office when we're working on the other side of the brain, when we are working on that left side of the brain. So like we've been just talking about all of autism, ADHD, and behavioral disorders and things of that nature, typically we're dealing with a right brain problem. We, we need to bring that side of the brain up. Like you said, it's that left brain is it's got its geniuses. So now we need to bring up the right brain. And on the other side of the coin, there are learning disorders on, on the left side of the brain. And that's why I bring them up. I always bring them up to kiddos that are dealing with learning disorders. Cause as you know, they oftentimes have self-esteem issues because of it. They, they just, they feel, they feel like they're dumb and they feel like they're stupid. And I'm like, you want to know who the biggest dumb genius on the planet was and no no one ever guesses it but when i say einstein eyes light up and they're ready to go because you know i have a couple of right brain kids (laughs) um so i know about this i'm more of a right brain dominant person and my wife is as well and you know like my you know i have my my daughter's like a music genius uh but she struggled with reading and Mm -hmm. um 
So I wrote a book called Einstein's Desk, yeah. which was a novel that I wrote with my brother. And it was really all about that. It was about um, a story that I initially started to put together with my son because he didn't like to read as a kid. And again, he had some issues. And so I wanted him to kind of be involved in the reading and the research, but I wanted him to also feel like, again, you know, relate to Einstein and, and show that, you know, Einstein had these delays and these developments. And when he was a kid, he was told that he was, a, you know, he was dumb and that he was, you know, mentally insufficient and that he would never amount to anything and that he, you know, was not a great student most of his life. And he wasn't even great at math. He was pretty good, but obviously he was a very bright guy. But, you know, he also was a daydreamer and he was a classic right brain you know, he only worked hard on things that he really liked. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here was a guy who was never, nobody would ever said he was a genius when he was in school. He uh, graduated, I think, four out of five in his PhD course. Um, and, you know, he couldn't get a job as a professor, which he desperately wanted because his father wanted him to be that. And uh, his father died when he was 21. And Einstein at that point, was the failure of the family. I mean, he was considered a failure. I mean, his father wrote letters all over trying to get him a job and he couldn't get a job. He was unemployed as an academic and, you know, eventually got a job as a patent clerk. And there's one letter he wrote to his sister after his father died that he basically said, I wish I should just kill myself. Basically, I, I wish I was dead. I shouldn't even be alive because I'm such a loser, basically. So, you know, that... There's some amazing stories in Einstein's life. And so my book, Einstein's Desk, is a novel that is based on him and Nikola Tesla and, you know, real events. It's a historical fiction. So it's like a Da Vinci code. But I wrote it because a right brain person is wants to learn by being entertained, by being, you know, so it's another way of educating people about my work. And I get a lot of young teenage boys and girls that read that book and it, re it resonates with them and they love it. And they're like, wow, okay, this is what's wrong with me. And, you know, this is what you do. And now I understand it, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll be, I'll be honest. That's the one book of yours I haven't read yet. Um, it, it's only because there's other things on the list. Uh, actually, what's, what's on the list is uh, Dr. Davidson's books next. The, one of the godfathers of hemisphericity, if you will. Oh yeah, uh, or, brain, or brain function. Yeah, Richard Richard Davidson's book is just unbelievable. I mean, that's where that's where it kind of started with me. You know, um, like I said, I was looking at the idea that there's some sort of imbalance, but you know, understanding what do the right brain do, what do the left brain do, I didn't really know. So I got that book, mm -hmm. and I just, I mean, I just ate it up, man. I I read I read it many times, and I just. And that's when I was reading that book, I was like, oh, my God, this is all right brain, left brain stuff. I mean, it's right here. You can't. And then I started looking at every other book that was like that and then papers and, you know, so. But really, Davidson's book on brain asymmetry, Davidson and Hugdall. Yeah, that's an amazing book. It really is a groundbreaking 1992, I believe it came out. So that's a great book to do. Yeah. Ninety two. They they had this info. Well, it means they had the info before it's. Right. Incredible. Yeah. Um, well, I think we kind of got to wrap up. Yeah, I guess I got to get back to some patients. But um, <laughs> uh, is there anything you want to plug? Um, um, yeah. yeah, you know, I, I mean, obviously my books um, uh, and, and I think that, you know, if anybody wants to learn more, I don't know if there are going to be doctors or clinicians listening to this, but, you know, I have my course. It's a fellowship course and it's online. We will be starting it up again in, um, I think, in February. We're going to start teaching it live in Dallas. Yep, I saw that um, February 2022. Yep. Yeah. So that's, you know, that course, and it's always evolving. It's always changing. And especially now, like I said, I'm in the midst of my PhD and, you know, I'm working with this team of neurologists, and it's basically looking at primitive reflexes and their relationship to autism and brain connectivity. And so they're collecting my data. This is a group of Cuban neurologists, which are, really advanced. And um, I saw so I, I taught them how to do the primitive reflex testing and, 
and they started doing it on all of their patients because we're looking not just at kids, but also at adults with autism. And so they're now doing it on everybody. They're at the Institute for Neurology and Neurosurgery, which is one of the top in the world. And they can't believe what they're finding to the point where now they're teaching it to their neurology residents because they're like, they have to know that they need to look at this, not just in one, because most, if anybody looks at primitive reflexes, it's really only for the first year. And then they don't look at it after that, if right. at all. Yeah, And um, it's a huge mistake. It's such a huge tool. And um, so, you know, that's in the next few years, next couple of years, I'll be publishing a ton of papers on this. Um, but, you know, learning about that in my course and how to be able to do it, how to be able to refine it, um, you know, is really uh, important. So, um, you know, that's something that I, I've even had parents that have gone through that course and have taken it and, and done that. And as I said, I just opened a new center which I believe is the premier center in the world right now for dealing with these issues. Um, it's on Long Island. It's a 3,500 square foot facility where we're using cutting edge tools and I'm there full time. And I see everybody myself um, because it's part of my, I'm perfecting this model. And, um, and then, you know, we're going to be uh, bringing this and teaching it to other people out there as well. And other doctors and therapists, we want to just like we bring brain balance across the country I want to bring these new Melillo method, uh, the Melillo method around the world. Um, you know, I have people all over the world that are struggling with this and, and, um, you know, and I think with the research that we have going out, um, over the next couple of years, it's going to really change things. So, um, if anybody wants to learn more, go to my website, drrobertmelillo.com. They want to make an appointment. That's where they go. Um, and then, you know, my books are meant for home use. That's right. Starting with disconnected kids, reconnected kids. Is it disconnected kids nutrition plan or reconnected yes. kids nutrition plan? Yes. Those and are then, all. And then autism, the scientific truth, which is, you know, when, yes. you know, the first book, Disconnected Kids, is what's actually happening in the brain. That was my question, right? So I answered that and gave people some tools on how to change it. The second book was as you change the brain, you start seeing all these crazy changes and symptoms that it can be confusing. So that book was about, all right, how do you understand the changes and how do you manage them? And then the third book was everybody was asking me, well, why are we seeing an epidemic? What causes these problems? And that was the third book. And then the fourth book was, okay, you know, what about diet and nutrition? What can we do? And so that's what that book was based on. And then, um, then we have a second edition of Disconnected Kids and then um, Einstein's Desk. And then um, hopefully, and we, we also just came out with a new, uh, one of my students just created a, a children's book called Ollie the Octopus and His Magnificent Brain. And huh. it's a really cool uh, children's book cool. that um, Dr. Genevieve Dharmaraj from Australia, a student of mine, and so I kind of co-wrote it with her, even though she did the bulk of the work. And it's great. It just explains to kids what the Melillo method is and what's actually happening in their brain and how there's nothing wrong with them and how they can do these activities and exercises to change their own brain. And so that's uh, that's my eighth book now. So and I'm just talking to my publisher about maybe two more books coming out soon. So we'll see what happens. Well, you're not busy at all. Jeez. Nah. Louise. <laughs> all right. Well, everyone can find uh, Doc on uh, social media as well. Just if you're typing in Dr. Robert Malello. Yes. And thank you again for coming on. It, it means a lot because uh, all the work you've done has definitely affected uh, my life and, and Dr. Lauren's lives, both personally and, and, and no doubt professionally. Well, um, so it means a lot. And uh, after we kind of hit the stop button here, I got to have you hang out for one minute. I got one more thing I got to tell you. So okay. thanks well, for listening, everyone. Listen, thank you. And thank you for all your efforts and for you and your wife. And like I said, I only I'm just honored that you guys, you know, work as hard as you do. And, and so thank you for helping me share this. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, everyone. The Dr. Alex Show is brought to you by Apex Energetics, apexenergetics.com. First of all, to learn more about Apex Energetics, head on over to that website. If you want to get Apex Energetics directly, uh, please call them 1-800-736-4381, or you can shop our online store. 
you can get to our online store at myhcpstore.com. Username is Dr. Alex. Otherwise, if you'd like to find a doctor that uses Apex Energetics, you can give them a call or go to the website and they'll direct you to a doc in your area that should be doing very good work with Apex Energetics. Apex has just been instrumental in our lives professionally and personally. About six years ago, we went through one of the most hellacious traumas that you can think of. And if it weren't for Apex with their stress support line of products, I probably would not be here. Point blank period. And in the office, you, making the switch from other lines to Apex Energetics has sped up our results with our patients, supporting them through their healthcare needs, um, probably by 25%. Um, if not, if not more. And when it comes to Apex Energetics, we just want to remind everyone that we are here to not cure diseases, making claims. We're here supporting people, increasing their healthcare needs and helping them achieve their goals. Apexenergetics.com. The Dr. Alex Show is hosted by myself, a nerd, Dr. Alex Nelson. I'm a chiropractor board certified in functional neurology and childhood neurodevelopmental disorders. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or most any of your other favorite podcast apps. The Dr. Alex Show is a production of Fredcasts. Think, speak, act.